The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Straight from the Experts, Clinical Conversations on Modernizing Hyperlipidemia Management with PCSK9 Targeting Agents. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash EHE 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. So welcome to the program. Uh, Dr. Warden, uh, to, to my right, and I, Bart Duell, are pleased to be here to talk to you about modernizing hyperlipidemia management with the use of PCSK9 uh, targeting agents. So our goals today are uh, threefold. Uh, one is to enhance your ability to apply current guidelines to prevent cardiovascular events in your patients with ASCVD. Um, hopefully provide you uh, information about the efficacy and safety of PCSK9 targeting therapies, and then spotlight the mechanism of action of uh, PCSK9 targeting therapies to optimize treatment of high-risk patients. So uh, here are our pictures. I'm Bart Duell. Uh, Dr. Warden is to my right, and <clears throat> we're both from Oregon Health and Science University in the preventive cardiology group there. So we're delighted to be able to share the stage together for this program. And we chose to skip the podium. We'll just sit here and have this be a little bit more informal. And I will start with the first section and then we'll switch over to Dr. Warden. So we'll start <coughs> with a patient named James. And in case you're interested in this case, it's published. You can see the reference down at the bottom. This is not our case. Um, but it makes some very helpful points for us to cover during this session. So he has genetically confirmed FH. He has a, a pathogenic variant in the LDL receptor. He has a TIA history as well as defined uh, ischemic strokes. His calcium score is elevated. We've left that off because it's not critical to the discussion. Has severe hypercholesterolemia with LDL cholesterol, 252 milligrams per deciliter, high normal triglyceride levels, and average HDL cholesterol. Treated with rosuvastatin, the clinic notes indicate that his highest LDL cholesterol concentration was 372 milligrams per deciliter. So he's 120 milligram uh, per deciliter uh, points down below where he started. He had a history of severe myalgias while taking atorvastatin and has a similar problem taking a rosuvastatin, does his best to try to take it, but does not take it every day. So, uh, Dr. Warden, is this a, a low-risk patient, high-risk patient? How would you classify this patient? Uh, oh, definitely. This is um, a very high-risk patient, as you know. A lot going on here. So he has the genetic predisposition with the female FH to, to lifelong exposure to severely elevated LDL levels. And, and we're seeing this manifest already with polyvascular um, ischemic issues with uh, cerebrovascular disease, with multiple attacks, as well as an elevated coronary artery calcium score. Uh, so he definitely meets the criteria uh, for a very high-risk patient. And in addition to that, now we also have uh, competing interests with um, dealing with potentially medication intolerance and some adherence issues too. So this is a patient that will require multiple therapies and we're struggling to adhere to one in particular right now. So a lot of work is needed. A lot of work is needed, yes. So <clears throat> the, uh, 
AHA guidelines and uh, ESC, EAS guidelines are highlighted on this slide. And the um, uh, EAS, ESC guidelines uh, got ahead of the game and recommended LDL uh, goals of less than 55 in patients such as this. So he is really a long way from goal. Um, he does qualify as a very high-risk patient. Um, the 2018 guidelines recommended an LDL goal less than 70, but then the updated guidelines also recommend LDL cholesterol less than 55 milligrams per deciliter. Um, newer therapies like bempedoic acid and glycerin, uh, these were not included in the guidelines, so that's part of our goal today is to um, discuss some of these issues. Um, lomidipide and evanacumab aren't really applicable because those are for homozygous FH. <clears throat> this shows the updated guidelines from the AHA ACC um, that include that goal of less than 55 for LDL cholesterol and then a comparable non-HDL cholesterol goal less than 85. And we do encourage everybody to use both of those because uh, often they're concordant, but in some cases not. Uh, LDL cholesterol can be 50 with non-HDL cholesterol 130 milligrams per deciliter in some patients. And then the update did include bempedoic acid and glycerin, lomidipide, and evanacumab. So um, statins, of course, are still the foundation of therapy. They're the go-to drug for many reasons. Three of them are shown here. One is they're very effective in primary prevention for prevention of MACE, secondary prevention, um, very rapid onset of benefit, and very well tolerated as well. So. Um, James is having trouble with his statin, so let's get into that a little bit more. Now, lots of factors go into this data shown here, but this shows the number of patients who are not getting any lipid-lowering therapy. And you've all seen this kind of data, and they're really very dismal. Uh, if you look at the far right for total ASCVD, number of patients receiving no lipid-lowering therapy is 57%. So that's despite all the fabulous guidelines that we have. Um, you want to comment on this, Dr. Warden? Yeah, very concerning data and obviously shows that we still have a lot of work to do um, with education, with treating, you know, in this particular case, James, that we'll be discussing, you know, is, it, is this due to uh, medication intolerance? Um, but know whether it's statin or other non-statin therapies, we have many safe and effective therapies to use. So it's um, concerning to see that this number is so high. Yeah. So. The good news is James is coming back to clinic, <clears throat> so there's the opportunity to make this better. This slide shows graphically the LDL lowering efficacy of the different agents uh, that we have. Bile acid sequestrants and azetamibe are roughly equal, although some people have greater or lower uh, LDL lowering efficacy. Similarly, bimpedoic acid, a little bit more potent. Um, we, uh, surprisingly, have had patients with FH who dropped their LDL cholesterol level more than 50% uh, with bimpedoic acid, so you don't know until you try it in the patient. Statins at high dose will lower LDL 50 to 60%, and then PCSK9 inhibitors, uh, monoclonal antibodies, will drop the LDL 50 to 60%, and in glycerin, slightly less, about 50%. So we're back to James. Highlighted now is that he's not adherent to the resuvastatin. And it's worth pointing out that 
compared to his highest LDL cholesterol level, he's down about 30% or so. So that's roughly the LDL lowering that we would expect from maybe five milligrams of resuvastatin a day. So it may be that he's taking it a couple times a week or three times a week. So he's getting some benefit, but obviously still very far from goal. So SAMs are a real nemesis for many patients. And uh, Dr. Warden and I had the good fortune of working on a, 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 a clinical perspective from the National Lipid Association. And I'll let you comment on this, uh, Dr. Yeah, Warden. thank you. Um, so statin-associated muscle symptoms, obviously uh, fairly pervasive in our clinic, but if we look at the full total population on statins, it's still a minority of patients, roughly 10% with a pretty wide confidence interval there. But regardless of statin causality, because the risk or the incidence is much lower in randomized trials, we still have to obviously treat the patient in front of us. And, and there are many different options that we have, um, lowering the statin dose. Uh, STAMs are very much dose-dependent. Switching statins, so there are seven FDA-approved statins, all utilize slightly different metabolic pathways uh, to undergo biotransformation. All of these can produce fairly um, comparable rates of tolerance. Somewhere in the 60 to 80% of patients who have statin intolerance will likely be able to tolerate some statin at some dose. So we have a lot of options, and, and many times we'll go many, many, four, five, six statins, depending on what the patient comfortability is with uh, continuing to try statins. And, and it is, unfortunately, a little trial and error, but making sure we're avoiding things like drug-drug interactions, which are the most common reasons. And if statins are not tolerated, or if we need additional therapies, obviously we have several safe and effective uh, non-statin options, which we'll go ahead and discuss a little bit more here in detail. Yeah, so <clears throat> we need to just keep trying, keep adding drugs, make changes, trying to get the patient to tolerate the therapy. Um, this slide shows um, on, on the panel on the left in that bar it shows a roughly 50% drop that you in theory can achieve with the statin, another 22% with ezetimibe, 20% with bimpadoic acid, and then 50% with a PCSK9 targeting agent. And the idea being that adding together four drugs if necessary, um, you can achieve incredible LDL cholesterol lowering, but you have to keep at it. and the data show that many physicians just aren't willing to keep adding drugs. They get the statin on board, maybe ezetimibe, but the job is not done until you get the LDL cholesterol to goal. They decided to uh, stop the statin and then switch to evolocumab. So you can see here the LDL cholesterol uh, went from 256 to 276 after switching from the statin to evolocumab. So, uh, Dr. Warden, do you want to make a comment about that? Yeah, no, thanks. And this is, uh, as, as Bart was saying, there's, there's no right or wrong answer here. The ultimate goal is we have to lower the atherogenic lipoproteins, but in making this switch from statin to um, evolocumab, uh, the paper goes on to say that the LDL increases and there's potential, um, you know, unusual response to the monoclonal antibody. But I really see it as more of a lateral shift. You're going from an LDL reducing therapy in statin that will reduce around 50%, and now you're switching to monoclonal antibody and evolocumab that will have a similar reduction. So if you see it, it's kind of a, a no change in the total LDL. It went down to 216 and then up to 276 after making that switch. But 
Um, obviously, we still have more work to do, and this is going to be a patient that's going to require several lipid-lowering therapies to get to goal. Yeah. So it makes it very hard to judge, but he may have had about a 30% drop in LDL cholesterol with evolocumab, and there is, of course, a distribution of response to the therapy. So um, I wouldn't say it didn't work. They, they concluded that it didn't work at all, but um, I think we can't judge it from these data. Now, these are, uh, we're, we're blessed to have all this data from Dr. Warden, and um, I'll give you the chance to comment on this as well, that um, the typical response to PCSK9 inhibitors that's published is what you see on the left, that the LDL goes down dramatically, even at two weeks, and then stays down over time. But there's a lot of possibility, as shown on the right-hand side. So you can comment briefly about that, please. Yeah, great. And, and there is definitely uh, a portion of patients who, what we termed an unusual responder, meaning they had less than a 30% LDL reduction. Uh, if we look at these, it's a small subset, so about 54 of 400 and so odd patients that we tested. Almost half of those, right out of the gate, we can contribute to medication non-adherence or changes in background therapy. So really, we're looking at maybe 5 to 8% of patients who may have various types of unusual response. They may take a little longer to uh, show the LDL reduction instead of at two weeks, as Bart was saying. It may take three to six months to see the full effect. They may have a lost response, where they had initially, and then uh, the LDL uptrended. They may have no response uh, or a reduced response. Um, but this is a, a fraction of the patients that we put on. But know that these patients do exist, and, and mechanistically what is going on here, we still have work to do to kind of iron this out. Yeah, thank you. So, yeah, for James, it's possible if he stayed on that therapy and waited another few months, perhaps the LDL would come down more, and uh, compliance certainly can be an issue there. But um, he reports being very compliant with the therapy, and we'll assume that it just didn't didn't pan out. So we'll switch over to you, uh, Dr. Warden, and um, continue the tag team here. But um, James still has a lot of work, so please he tell sure us does. more about what we can do for him. Great, thank you. Yeah, no, he sure does. And we'll return to the case. And in this particular case, the and again, there's no right or wrong answer other than intensifying his lipid-lowering therapy. Uh, the authors decided to uh, switch him from evolocumab for an inadequate response to bempidoic acid and azetamibe as combo therapy. And as you see, he had a very nice response there. Um, and so we're, we're trending in the right direction at this particular time, but we still have uh, further to go. So one uh, potential option, looking at uh, PCSK9 inhibition, as, as we described, uh, the LDL reduction from these monoclonal antibodies, alirocumab on the left and evolocumab on the right, for most patients, uh, is dramatic, quick, and sustained. Again, an LDL reduction of about 50 to 60%. And these are outcomes from the cardiovascular outcome trials, the Odyssey outcomes, and the Fourier trial. And with this amount of LDL reduction, then we typically see uh, divergence in the curves and reduction in ischemic events. So this is looking at uh, a compilation of major adverse cardiovascular outcomes, uh, so about a 1.5% absolute risk reduction uh, on the left and about a 2% on the right. Uh, so our relative risk reductions are about 15% between these, but it shows that over time, if we lower the LDL on treatment, LDLs in both of these trials were somewhere in the 30 to 50 milligram per deciliter range. Over time, we get reduction in major adverse events. 
So these are sub-analyses then from those uh, cardiovascular outcome trials, which were done in patients who had uh, established cardiovascular disease. And I'll go back one slide real quick. The odyssey outcomes being those that are uh, recently suffering in acute coronary syndrome, so more acute events. Uh, the four-year trial were, were stable patients, but still very, very high risk, usually a couple years out from their index event. So within these patients who had established disease, there are subpopulations that we say could have garnered additional uh, cardiovascular benefits. So these are typically patients who have had multiple ischemic events, multiple myocardial infarctions, have multi-vessel disease, have uh, lipid disorders uh, such as uh, uh, familial hypercholesterolemia with LDLs well over 100, uh, and those with peripheral artery disease. Uh, in general, uh, termed to be patients who uh, would garner more than that 15% relative risk reduction on the order of 18 to 32%. And we're not saying that these are the only patient populations by any means to use PCSK9 inhibitors. These are ones that we'd expect potentially an additional benefit from. And when looking at LDL, and I think the story becomes clear with PCSK9 inhibition, uh, we've shown that lowest is best. We push the LDL um, sequentially lower, we get additional risk reduction. So the figure on the left is showing that we get LDL reduction all the way down to the single digits, getting LDL down to seven milligram per deciliter. We continue to get a reduction in major cardiovascular events. So we have not seen any floor effect. There isn't an effect where if we lower LDL, uh, we're at risk of not only in, uh, increasing um, adverse cardiovascular outcomes on the left, but also on the right, it's also safe with no increased risk of adverse events, regardless of the LDL. So as an example, uh, the serious adverse effects on the, the graph on the left, uh, showing at LDL of 100 milligram per deciliter, same percent of patients, roughly 23% as those who had an LDL of less than 20 milligram per deciliter. So the adverse outcomes did not track with the achieved LDL reduction. I think this is an important point, and Bart, you can chime in here. Um, a question that comes up a lot from our patients about this, quote unquote, is there too low of an LDL that we can attain? Yeah, at this point, I think we have excellent confidence that patients are going to do well with LDL cholesterol levels of 10 or 20 milligrams per deciliter if they're lucky enough to get down to that point. And certainly there's a concern about possible hemorrhagic stroke that seems to be a pretty trivial risk. Um, compared to five years ago or eight years ago when the clinical trials were being done with uh, alarocumab and evolocumab, there was enough concern that with the alarocumab studies, they actually stopped therapy if LDL cholesterol levels went below 20 because we just didn't have the data. But as shown on this slide, we have very clear evidence that there's no safety signal with these super low LDL cholesterol levels. Yeah. And, and a benefit, too. An absolute yeah. benefit, yeah. yes. So now shifting gears a little bit, we're going to talk about other ways to modulate PCSK9. And so on the left is an overview, and our traditional drug therapy is targeted on reducing a protein uh, after it's already been produced. So if we look right here, enzyme inhibitor, this is where our statins are going to be after the enzyme has already been produced in our HMG-CoA reductase enzyme, a receptor or transporter, uh, this could be our Neiman-PIC uh, C1-like one with uh, azetamibe inhibition, and then our protein, we'll say PCSK9 inhibitors, uh, our monoclonal antibodies will sequester these on the extracellular side, and now there's even in development oral PCSK9 inhibitors with macrocyclic uh, polypeptides that will then bind these. But it, traditionally it's been 
therapies that are targeting a ligand or a protein that's already produced. Now we have uh, RNA-targeting drug therapies on the market, not only for PCSK9, but for other targets within lipidology as well, but we're going to focus on PCSK9 here. And these RNA-targeting drugs get intracellular access, and really what's allowed us to do that has been this modification here, this galnac moiety uh, that binds these aglycoprotein receptors on the surface of hepatocytes, allowing for targeted approach. So the plasma half-life of these RNA-based therapies is very, very short on the order of hours. It gets intracellular access, and now we can inhibit protein production. So we're silencing the gene in essence, and there's two different modalities for this, antisense oligonucleotides, and small interferon RNA. Both of these are short uh, nucleic acid sequences. The siRNA product for PCSK9 inhibition is in glycerin. And what this allows us to do is utilize our cell's machinery um, to then bind the uh, messenger RNA for PCSK9 on the complementary scenes, uh, sequences and uses the risk molecule, again, our own intracellular machinery to then degrade that messenger RNA for PCSK9. So you actually don't produce PCSK9 or very, very little of it. Um, so these are gene silencing therapies designed to reduce PCSK9 from an intracellular standpoint. And again, this is the mechanism of action of uh, glycerin. And so we'll go ahead and, and drive that, this point home with a, a quick little video um, on this mechanism. Before diving into the MOA of siRNA therapeutics, let's explore some foundational knowledge to better understand siRNA. Within a cell, the nucleus sends orders for various proteins needed by the body via mRNA to the ribosomes, where the cell manufactures proteins. This process can be interrupted by RNA interference, where the order for a protein is stopped by degrading the mRNA to prevent the protein from being produced. This process is known as silencing the gene. To treat hyperlipidemia, siRNA therapeutics such as inclisiran block the synthesis of PCSK9. It works by unwinding and unloading its instructions into the corresponding RNA-induced silencing complex in the cytoplasm. By doing so, inclisiran targets and silences the mRNA for PCSK9 and stops the orders for PCSK9 from reaching the ribosomes. Less PCSK9 means greater LDL-C receptor efficiency, leading to lower LDL-C levels in the circulation. Because of its long-lasting effect, inclisiran may be a potential solution to poor treatment adherence. Okay, so we'll take a look at the uh, lipid response, LDL-lowering response to inclisiran. And here's a couple of things that we'll note. Uh, on the left, a single dose, again, you get rapid LDL reduction, a similar trend that we're seeing here. Um, really starting within a few weeks and reaching a nadir somewhere in the one to two month range at about an LDL reduction, about 50%. And then over time, with just one dose, you'll see the LDL starts to uh, trend up, but it's still uh, reduced over 20% right around a year mark. So I think this has some implications for one of the unsolved mysteries in medicine, which is medication adherence. If we can get patients to at least get even one dose of a medication like this per year, we're going to have sustained LDL reduction. But our goal would be uh, sustained and potent LDL reduction. So looking at a two-dose regimen uh, given uh, on day one and then in glycerin again on day 90, here you'll see you get closer to that 50%, 40% reduction uh, throughout the dosing interval. So the FDA-approved dosing for glycerin is going to be dose on day 90 on day one. 
again on day 90, and then every six months thereafter. So it should, in essence, coincide with uh, when patients will be seeing their providers every six months. Uh, the Orion Clinical Trials uh, program is really a, a compilation of, of phase one and three trials that have investigated in glycerin uh, from its pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics, to also use in patients who have ASCBD and FH. The two cardiovascular outcome trials in the top left, the Orion 4 and Victorian 2P, are very large trials, 15,000 patients or more with established ASCVD, and we'll be seeing those outcomes uh, hopefully presented in the next few years, 2026 and 2027, respectively. But we do already have some uh, uh, long-term data on a, a fair number of patients with the Orion's 9 in the FH population uh, and Orion's 10 and 11 in patients with ASCVD. Yes, a quick question pharmacologically. Why did they choose zero, one, and six, not zero and six? And what, was, what was the strategy pharmacologically of early two successive doses? Uh, um, so the question was, uh, and correct me if I'm uh, not misrepresenting this, why did they choose a dosing regimen of day zero? Days. Sorry, it's, it's day uh, zero and uh, 90 days, so three months out. Yeah, so dose on day one or day zero, depending on how you want to see it, and then again at three months. But they're loading, and then it's every six months thereafter, because if we go back to the, I don't know if it'll show me, but you start to see uh, the LDL start the uptrend uh, right around that day 90 mark. But it's dose on day one, again at three months, so day 90, and then every six months thereafter, yeah to get the time to affect a little faster. Uh, when comparing the different modalities for PCSK9 inhibition, we have our monoclonal antibodies, which have data to support that they reduce uh, MACE, major adverse cardiovascular events. And we have the outcome trials that we talked about, the Odyssey outcomes in the Fourier trial, uh, which showed uh, statistically significant uh, risk reduction in, in this endpoint. And then with the evolocumab trial, now we have uh, the open label extension of the Fourier going all the way out to eight, over eight years of therapy on monoclonal antibodies showing sustained uh, cardiovascular risk reduction and good safety as well. Looking at glycerin again, we're waiting for the outcome studies, which will be um, uh, published here in 2026, I believe at the earliest, in the Orion 4 and Victorian 2P, but we can have some suggestion or some hints at what uh, the potential effect on MACE would be. So um, there was a meta-analysis of the Orions 9, 10, and 11, which from a safety population pooled these results together. So these are uh, a suggestion or a hypothesis generating results. They weren't targeted for cardiovascular risk reduction, but it did show potential risk reduction for major adverse events. Again, we kind of have to take this with a grain of salt. It showed a 26% relative risk reduction until we actually see what the cardiovascular outcome trials show. Bart, I don't know if you recall, but in the um, earlier studies of the monoclonal antibodies, we also saw this very big suggestion of a major Dramatic, adverse event, yeah. about 40 or 50 percent. Yeah. But when we did the cardiovascular outcome trials, it was attenuated with that 15 to 20 percent. So we'll have to wait and see, but I believe the, the data is promising, the mechanism of action is promising for cardiovascular prevention. And not only does this seem to lower LDL in an effective uh, manner, it has suggestion of cardiovascular benefit, but it seems to be safe as well uh, in the large um, 
the randomized controlled trials that we've seen thus far, both from adverse of serious adverse events and even medication discontinuation. So it seems to be analogous to placebo. And, and I'm going to pivot to you again here, Bart, and say a lot of the patients that we see in clinic, they're dealing with a lot of, you know, a 20, 30-year history of medication intolerance. Do you get this question, concerns, um, uh, you know, uh, items about using this medication in someone of that particular makeup? Um, yeah, that's a common question we get, as yeah. you know. And patients who are nervous about taking any drug, who then are told they're going to take a drug every six months, some have a feeling of panic, thinking, my gosh, I, they'll die if they get this drug. And um, it often requires many visits and lots of discussion back and forth before they're ready to go for this. But um, for a patient like James, it really comes down to choosing the least bad option. And um, the odds are that they may do very well with the therapy. And so um, we've had pretty good success uh, convincing people that this is going to be a good option for them, and sometimes it's their last option. Yeah. It comes down to apheresis or doing this, and so they will choose this over uh, apheresis in many cases. Yeah, and one item that, that I uh, discuss with patients too is when we're talking about off-site adverse effects, this is usually drugs that have a large uh, systemic uh, exposure. And so with the Enclisterone product, it, its plasma resident time is, is very short on the order of a few hours. It very quickly gets into the hepatocyte and it resides there, again, where it has an effective half-life in terms of LDL reduction of, of up to a year, but it seems to be a more targeted approach. And I generally see those that are more targeted therapies uh, seem to be better tolerated for most patients. So. Yeah, We need to gather some more. The clinical trial data looks very good for what we have thus far in terms of safety, but what we see in the clinical trials doesn't always line up with what we see in clinical practice, so we'll have to get that real-world data to confirm that. And that's showing here a comparison of the PCSK9 inhibiting therapies in terms of tolerance. Uh, as with most drug trials, the most common reported adverse event, again, no difference between placebo is nasopharyngitis. Uh, Placebo-derived differences uh, for these parental therapies is going to be injection site reactions. And these are usually very mild, uh, pain, bruising, um, uh, discomfort at the injection site that are usually very short-lived. And again, with our monoclonal antibodies, we do have real-world data that shows that outside of a clinical trial, uh, in the real world, we do see a higher proponent of other adverse events, uh, such as myalgias, um, flu and cold-like symptoms or other ones that our patients will describe. They're overall very low, less than 10% or so, but it is something that does uh, lead to medication non-adherence with discontinuation. We don't have that data for Enclisterin yet, so I'll be definitely anxiously awaiting, and hopefully we can contribute uh, to what this looks like in the real world. Now, quickly just wanted to, to I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but emphasize that when we're looking at uh, cardiovascular risk reduction with these PCSK9 inhibiting therapies, one mechanistic realm is looking at its effects on the plaque physiology. And so we know that both alirocumab and evolocumab, and now some preclinical data with enclycerin, shows that there's favorable effects on the actual plaque itself in terms of increasing its stability by increasing calcification. Uh, increasing the fibrous cap, uh, and in doing this, we can actually see even plaque regression if we get LDLs low enough. So I think uh, an important concept that I discuss with patients is if we get LDL 
below 70, we can really slow plaque progression, but to get plaque regression, we're gonna probably have to aim for that LDL, that 20 to 40 milligram per deciliter range. And, and that can actually be a motivating factor for some patients too. So we'll come back to the case. Uh, the authors actually chose to add uh, inclycerin and while well, they're waiting authorization, uh, started another statin, patavastatin in this case and eventually got on both patavastatin and inclycerin. So their total lipid-lowering therapy is now four drugs, bempidoic acid, ezetimibe, patavastatin, and inclycerin, and an on-treatment LDL of 67. Uh, so it really takes a village to treat some of these patients in terms of getting the appropriate therapies on board. Quickly, uh, w when looking at PCSK9 inhibitors, uh, there's many publications that show we're not utilizing this to the degree that we need to, and this, uh, I think, because of barriers that are currently in place. So injections, this being a parentally administered medication, I'll be honest, this isn't really something that a lot of our patients um, will say, this is not a therapy for me. I think we can definitely discuss the, the importance of this. An injection issue isn't a big concern, but access and cost can definitely be uh, getting insurance approval. Uh, once it's approved, getting that to be affordable medication, it, it can be a challenge. And then we're looking at adherence. Um, the monoclonal antibodies, you're gonna give these every two weeks to four weeks. Uh, one way to remove that adherence or take the adherence component out of the patient's hands is to look at something like inclycerin, an siRNA product where the product is administered in the clinic by the provider, so we actually see the drug go in. But just as we can have drug non-adherence, we can have patient non-adherence to clinic visits as well. So that's something that we do have to keep, keep an eye on. Other potential barriers that I mentioned, uh, the monoclonal antibodies in the real world, we do see more systemic adverse effects than I think were established in the randomized controlled trials. So we still can't have medication intolerance there. And in and other things that I'm, uh, we'll be evaluating is increased healthcare usage, especially right now where healthcare is definitely strained. This is going to put more emphasis on uh, patients coming through clinic. And so we'll have to develop other unique ways. In our clinic, we're having a nurse and medical assistants help with the administration process to kind of free up the providers a little bit. So there are definitely working rounds around that. And then we'll have to gather some more clinical experience uh, with real-world data, too. I'm going to just very briefly, we're getting ready to, to, to wrap up here. I get a lot of questions, and, and Bart even calls me a magician sometimes on getting medications approved. And there's really nothing magical about what is being done here, but there's, I think, a, a, an important formula for getting these drugs approved. And first and foremost, making sure we're, we're prescribing these for the appropriate indications. So our high-risk patients who have established cardiovascular disease, uh, familial hypercholesterolemia, a portion of those patients will be statin intolerant, but I think it's very important that we have to document what background therapies that they've been on. Um, for some patients, the maximal tolerated statin is zero, and so listing what therapies they've been on and what response, and then why we want to go with, say, a PCSK9 inhibitor like inclycerin versus, say, something like bempidoic acid, looking at the degree of LDL reduction um, from what the patient is at their current baseline LDL. And then it's very important that this is all documented, obviously, in our, our chart notes, very easily accessible. And know that a portion of these, uh, even at the most appropriate patient, the best documentation are still going to be denied. Um, so don't be afraid to appeal these, especially in the appropriate patients. And this is just an example of uh, utilizing, I think, an appropriate team-based structure, which is what we use at OHSU, to really improve access to PCSK9 inhibitors. This is looking at our monoclonal antibodies, but showed with a multidisciplinary team, we have very high approval rates of PCSK9 
uh, almost 100%. At the time from being seen to medication approval is very short. We get appropriate um, lipid-lowering therapies, and that once it's approved, that's hurdle one. The next is getting cost reduction. Know that there are many uh, grants, patient assistant programs, and copay cards available for patients to lower their cost. And in our group, uh, just a little over 2% are unable to take because of cost. So there's definitely structures in place that can be implemented to help improve patient access. So Bart, we'll go ahead and pivot back to you. Can you wrap this up in a nice uh, package with a bow to summarize kind of what we've, the journey we've gone through here in the last little bit? Yeah, thank you. you uh, this has been excellent, and we're down to the last uh, assigned minute. We want to get on to the questions and answers, but um, we're using this as kind of a summary slide, and um, number one point, which is not on the slide, is that the goal, of course, is getting appropriate LDL cholesterol lowering and non-HDL cholesterol lowering. So. How you do that is less important than uh, whether you achieve the goal or not. And so PCSK9 inhibitor therapies are very helpful for achieving that goal because of the dramatic uh, 50 or 60% drop in LDL cholesterol that can be achieved. And so you've heard about uh, use of enclycerin, which is a small interfering RNA molecule versus the monoclonal antibodies, alirocumab and evolocumab. And uh, we received a question about oral PCSK9 inhibition, and that's still experimental. We'll see if that makes it to the market or not. But um, they work uh, through different mechanisms, but the LDL lowering efficacy is similar. Um, LPA reduction is similar. Uh, delivery, you heard, is uh, done at home with the monoclonal antibodies. And the siRNA and glycerin is designed to be given by a healthcare provider. Um, dosing frequency is vastly different, as you've heard. AEs are similar, at least the rates of AEs are similar. MACE reduction, well proven with the monoclonal antibodies, um, remains to be determined uh, within glycerin, although the animal data are very suggestive. And then the cost is in a similar range as well. So um, the availability of enclycerin uh, gives us just one more option, one more tool in the toolbox that we can use to help our patients achieve adequate LDL cholesterol lowering. So um, we'll move on to, or I'll let you make any final comments you'd like to make as well. No, I think that, uh, that was wonderful. And just, yeah, I think having the breadth of options now, um, going back even a decade ago that we didn't, uh, really empowers our patients to uh, have many safe and effective therapies to help reduce their atherogenic lipoproteins. Yeah, and uh, actually before we go to the questions, yeah. I'll comment that uh, in our clinic, we wouldn't be happy with James' LDL cholesterol concentration of 67. Um, that meets the older guidelines, so we would do something more, and I think that we'll leave that to another discussion. But. Um, um, we would do our best to try to get his LDL cholesterol level at least less than 55 milligrams per deciliter. Yeah. So I don't want to leave the impression that we think he's adequately treated at this point. Yeah. And if you get a chance to review that, uh, that case in that article, his LDL actually trends back up too. So there's, there's more work to be done. Yeah. yeah. Well, great. Want to go ahead and pivot to some of the questions? Yeah. I'll send this one, first one to you. Um, can you comment on the paper published in the BMJ about restoring mortality data on the four-year cardiovascular outcome trial? 
On the Fourier, mm -hmm. the reanalysis. Um, yeah, I'm not. I'll let you comment. On this. Okay. Yeah, it seemed to be a controversial topic, and yeah. um, I think uh, Amgen, as well as other thought leaders in the area, definitely. Um, kind of put that in, into place, stating that it was an inappropriate analysis of, of the data, yeah. um, and that the FDA obviously did their due diligence in reviewing this, and that the data stands. Correct, yeah. Uh, let's see here. It made headlines. It, it did. Um, the comments regarding using PCSK9 inhibitors in pediatric patients. Um, yeah, so, <clears throat> Many providers are nervous about giving drugs to pediatric patients, but um, if they need it, then it's an appropriate therapy. And um, uh, FDA approved for, for use. Um, the really young patients, those with uh, homozygous FH, really all the rules go out the window as far as I'm concerned. And you, you, as soon as you diagnose it, if they're two years old, you start them on a statin and azetamibe and keep adding therapies until you get adequate LDL cholesterol lowering. Yeah, there does not seem to be a negative effect on growth and development or puberty. No. And no. so um, we, don't, we don't hold back in those patients. No, and it looks like the uh, FDA-approved age is down to 10. There's data going as low as eight years of age, mm -hmm. but as Bart was saying, and these uh, exceedingly high-risk patients with homozygous FH, those rules do go out the door. Yeah. yeah. And actually, I meant to open up. Was there anyone that uh, had questions in the audience before we go? We're, we're uh, looking at the online questions, but is there any questions from the audience that we can answer? You can go to the microphone if you don't mind so everyone can hear. You, you may have already covered this, but I was late to the, to the show this morning. But um, we're faced with more and more primary care prevention, uh, and we see and stratify a lot of patients w with imaging, calcium scoring, and it's amazing how many occult, severe ASCVD patients I find based on calcium scoring. How do you place this in somebody they're 1,000, they're, they're 1,500. Um, a, from an insurance approval, and also where do you put that um, uh, for these patients after you've done statin, azetamibe, et cetera? That's a great question. Um, I, can, I can speak to that. Sure. Uh, so there's definitely, so we're talking about subclinical atherosclerosis, particularly coronary arteries uh, disease. And if you look at the cardiovascular outcome trials, those patients weren't technically enrolled, they had to have an event. So we're going outside of the box, but our group very commonly will consider those patients obviously high risk, especially depending on the age at which we see that in, and consider that established coronary disease. And there's some data, I believe it's actually out of, uh, from the four-year trial, looking at where that coronary artery calcium score starts to uh, approximate someone with a secondary event. So it's, uh, and this was incorporated into the 2022 guideline update, so it shows calcium scores of greater than 1,000. But if you look at that curve, it really starts to approximate probably closer to about 300. Um, so we consider these patients, again, to be high-risk patients with established disease, um, and when we'll uh, prescribe those in the appropriate patient. And I agree, insurance coverage can be a little tricky with that because um, they're going off of uh, guideline recommendations, which are they've, they should have had an event first. 
Um, but I, I think our job in prevention is to catch it before the event. Um, and the earlier we can get those therapies on board, um, prevent uh, plaque progression, like we said, getting LDLs down to 70 can slow plaque progression, but getting it into the 20s to 40s, that's really where we can start to see plaque regression, uh, I think is our job as clinicians to, to catch them earlier on. And if, if I can just add, the age of the patient, of course, matters as well. And so if somebody's 40 years old and their calcium score is 15, that's a numerically very low score, but very abnormal. That means they're already showing evidence of plaque at that age. And although their 10-year risk may be low, their lifetime risk is very high. And so that we count that as uh, evidence of CAD, basically. And similarly, even just having calcification in the aorta may not put the patient directly at risk, but it's a sign that the process is in place of them making atherosclerotic plaque, and you can choose to do nothing and let it get worse, or intervene and try to stop that process from progressing. I think it's a, an important area where the guidelines have tried to address it, but mm -hmm. don't fully uh, capture the subtleties there. Yeah, and there, there's always a leg between data guideline updates and then when these rules are adopted by insurances too. So actually this year, I'm starting to see the 2018 uh, AHA guidelines being adopted more. So patients who are very high risk as being those that are PCSK9 eligible. So it's made PCSK9 access a little bit more challenging specifically for that group that you're discussing. Um, ironically enough, as Bart was saying, you know, looking uh, in the coronary artery calcium scores, uh, the CT imaging looking at the aorta, if there's plaque there, I actually have much better success in peripheral artery disease than I do even coronary artery calcium scores. So reclassifying some of those patients, depending on where you see the plaque, can be helpful too. Great question. Any other questions from the audience? Too early in the morning. <laughs> uh, okay, we have here, uh, after a cardiac event, can the PCSK9 inhibitors be started in addition to statin therapy? So it looks like this is potentially in the um, acute care setting. Um, yeah, so the, the question is, like after a, an ACS, can you start a PCSK9 inhibitor? And the answer is, of course. Um, the choosing the appropriate therapy may be something else, but um, you need to think it through carefully. You can also make your best guess about it as well. So if you were meeting James in the ICU with his acute coronary syndrome and his LDL cholesterol level is 250, you know that a statin alone isn't going to be enough and even adding azetamibe. And so um, that is a setting where you might uh, want to actually start the PCSK9 inhibitor right there in the uh, coronary care unit. And um, yeah, I'll quit with that. I'll let us go on. No, I think that's a great response. We have uh, one from the audience. We'll go ahead and pivot there. Actually, a note of caution. The, I used uh, CH, sorry, no. What I want to say is that you 
she should care about relying on things other than the living. The reason why is because the Arizona Hoyers to a lecture at the ACC meeting in Los Angeles in 2002, and the uh, presenter who was chief of the Arizona Hoyers to presented his case as a fellow who came in for a coincidental coronary cancer for the calcium score. He did it actually as an uh, and it was terrible, terrible. They said, oh, you're in trouble. How about your parents? Both parents were in their 90s. They both got uh, CAC scores. And their CAC scores were off the wall as well. This man had no cardiac risk factors. And hemorrhoid was fat, and of course the cardiac, uh, sorry, the CAC went up. My brother was fat and the CAC. And the man was just tearing his hair out. The, the problem, I think, in trying to detect this is that if you don't take HDL into account, while the question of HDL raising has been uh, raised, nonetheless, nobody questions the ability of HDL to determine the prediction of population at risk. And so if you have a wonderful ratio between LDL and HDL, not in all cases, but in most cases, you don't need to do calcium score. You don't need to do the LDL because it's all down to LDL and HDL. Um, and I'm doing an exhibition, I'll post it tomorrow on that. Um, anyway, I just wanted to say look at LDL and HDL. Of course, if you've got a type 2, the original application, all bets are off. But that's not where most heart attacks occur. Most heart attacks occur with LDLs under average. 80%, for example. So I just urge you to look at uh, HDL raw with the LDL, and you can make a prediction from that. So thank, thank, thank you for the comment. I'll, I'll just um, say a, a really important issue here is that risk factors don't tell us who will have an event. Um, they allow us to make a guess about that. And part of what you're referring to is just the exceptions. Like there are people who smoke two packs of cigarettes a day and they're 95 years old and still alive with no cardiac events. But that doesn't mean smoking is okay. That just says that's a unique person who somehow is resistant to the toxic effects. And I would say the, uh, the ratio of LDL to HDL or whatever ratio you look at is merely one other measure of risk and it's, it, it won't predict exactly who will have an event as well. So that's why imaging techniques are so helpful in that regard. And then there are people with CAC scores of 1,000 who never have an event, but the data show that for those with very high scores, um, they have a, a tripling or quadrupling in risk of cardiac events just in general. So we're at the end. We need to quit. I think... Uh, We'll have to answer the question. Um, we have to move out and so we can start the next session. So thank you, everybody, thank for you attending this. Uh, thank you for the great questions. And uh, thank you, Dr. Warden, for uh, your excellent presentation. And hope you have a great day, everybody. Great. Thank you. This activity is certified by the National Lipid Association. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit 
at peerview.com forward slash E-H-E 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation.